Nehemiah chapter 10, starting verse 28. Now the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites. Now I'm picking up with verse 28 because verses 10 through 27, uh, we have the seal, verse 1. Now those who placed their seal in the document, Nehemiah the governor, and then it goes through Levites and their brethren. But drop down to verse 28 of chapter 10. Now the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, uh, the Nethanim, and all those who had separated themselves from the peoples of the land to the law of God, their wives, their sons, and their daughters, everyone who had knowledge and understanding, these joined with their brethren, their nobles, and entered into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, which was given by Moses, the servant of God, to observe and to do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, in his ordinances and his statutes. We would not give our daughters as wives to the people of the land, nor take their daughters for our sons. If the peoples of the land brought wares or any grain to sell on the Sabbath day, we would not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day, and we would forgo the seventh year's produce and the exacting of every debt. Also, we made ordinances for ourselves to exact from ourselves yearly one-third of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. Uh, Just a couple other verses. I'm not going to read all these because we're going to go through the rest of these verses next week, but just drop down just a few to get a flavor for what takes place in verses 32 through 39. Uh, Verse 35, for example, we made ordinances to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all of our trees year by year. Verse 36, the firstborn of our sons. Verse 37, the first fruits of dough uh, and our offerings. And later in there, bring the tithes of our land to the Levites, for the Levites receive the tithes in all of our communities. Uh, verse 39 at the end, and we will not neglect the house of our God. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that this would be us, that we'd enter into a commitment of walking in your ways, that we would not neglect the house of our God, that we would not neglect the God that lives in our hearts, that we would not neglect the Savior who died for our sins. Lord, we'd enter in willingly into the Holy of Holies by your mercy and by your grace. We pray, Lord, that you do a work in us this morning, these next five Sundays, these last 30 days of the year. And not only in us, but, Lord, outside these four walls, we pray that we would see people come to know you, Lord, that right now aren't even thinking about you, but they need revival. They're asleep, and they need to be awakened. They're in darkness, and they don't know it. Lord, we know that when you came, it said a a light has dawned in the darkness. We pray, Lord, that you would open the eyes of those that are in darkness and, Lord, don't know you and don't have the hope of eternity. We pray that you'd bring revival in the body of Christ here at Calvary Chapel Richmond, in our nation, in our community. Even this Christmas season, we'd see prodigals come home. We'd see unsaved family members come to Jesus. We would see co-workers willing to come to church, even once. And Lord, that you'd prick hearts, and you'd open eyes, and you'd open ears. We know, Lord, that you are the answer to every problem that we see, in the news, and in the media, and on our phones. Lord, you are the answer. And we pray, Lord, that you would even more drive that point home by your Spirit in our hearts. Increase our faith 
And Lord, may we leave here more in love with you than we came. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Turn one other place with me to Luke chapter 7. You get two passages for the price of one today. Luke chapter 7. Totally different. You might say, well, I don't know how this text relates to Nehemiah chapter 10, but we'll see if it makes sense. And the reason why I want to read it, because everything God does, he does at the heart level, or, or that's the intention, amen? He's not looking for window dressing. He's always looking at the heart. Luke chapter 7, this is the ministry of Jesus, his earthly ministry, uh, the three years that uh, he had his public ministry before he goes to the cross. And we see in the seventh chapter, Jesus is invited to a Pharisee's home. But he's not invited because they really want to hear from him. He's invited because they want to trap him, observe him, figure out something that, that, uh, that would verify for them that he is false. So it's not with the greatest of intentions that he's invited to lunch. You know, so uh, you can be, you know, there's... You ever seen those movies where the mafia invites someone to lunch? There's some lunch meetings that you're not really the guest of honor. And Jesus is invited to this lunch meeting, but they're not really wanting to kind of hear from him, learn from him, and love on him. Uh, it's really, again, uh, bad motives on their part. But pick it up with me in uh, Luke chapter 7, verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went to the Pharisee's house, and he sat down to eat. Verse 36, Luke chapter 7. Verse 37 here, And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she knew Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil, and stood at his feet behind him. Jesus was probably seated, kind of legs to the side a little bit, and she was right behind, which was a place of just um, humility on her part, weeping. She began to wash his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head, and she kissed his feet, and anointed them with fragrant oil. Now when the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, again, these are very religious men, but not transformed men. Now when the Pharisees who invited him saw this, he spoke to himself. Now he doesn't speak out loud, he's just thinking. Be careful when you're thinking around Jesus, because you're, it's, it's, like, um, uh, it's better than like your Siri or anything. It picks up everything. Jesus he knows exactly what this guy is thinking. So he's thinking in his mind, this man, having a conversation in his head, if he were a prophet, he would know what man or woman, this is a prostitute, probably, that's touching him, for she's a sinner. And Jesus answered him. Jesus says, oh, by the way, you that thought you were thinking. <laughs> Simon, I have something to say to you. So he says, teacher, say it. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. So think 500 bucks versus 50 bucks or $5,000 versus, you know, $500. Verse 42, when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, uh, so I suppose the one who he forgave more. And he said to him, you have rightly judged. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. 
And you gave me no water for my feet. That was customary for, to, to wash people's feet, especially someone of honor. But they didn't consider Jesus of any honor, so they did not offer any water for his feet. He was literally the creator of the universe, their savior, their sins, and they would not offer him water for his feet. You're invited to lunch, but you should know that you're not really a guest of honor here. He said, you offered me no water for my feet, but yet she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, no embrace. That was normal culturally to give an embrace, a little kind of side thing. You ever been to Latin America or South Florida, they do the same thing. A little side, uh, Middle East, customary. They didn't do that. You gave me no kiss, but she, um, uh, she has not, but this woman, you gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet, incredibly humble, since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil. Again, if if you considered this person to be a prophet, a priest, an anointed person, the anointing of oil automatic. You know, say, hey, we, we, we want to anoint you. It's way our, our, our blessing he gave. He said, you did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman is anointing my feet with fragrant oil. Expensive, actually, everything she actually probably owned. Therefore, I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. Now, he leaves out. Guess where their sins still are? Not forgiven. He doesn't say that, but he says, for she loved much. To whom Little is forgiven, the same loves little. Do you think God's forgiven you a lot or a little? <laughs> if you think he's forgiven you a lot, it, it's his mercy that he wants to birth in us the recognition of just how much he has done for us that would cause us to love him much. He goes on to say, and then they said at the table, who is this who can forgive sins? And he said to the woman, your faith is saved, you go in peace. And I believe I believe a lot of other people believe she had already come to salvation prior to this. This was her act of devotion. I believe she had already come to salvation. He was simply stating that when I forgave you, you were already forgiven, but that now the, out, the outflow of your life is testifying that your sins are forgiven. Remember, uh, Zacchaeus was saved when Jesus saved him. It was after he got saved that he went and said, i got to repay everybody. He didn't simply say, well, hey, uh, Jesus forgave me, so hey, your losses, guys. Sorry I did all that stuff to you for all those years. No, there was the evidence of repentance. Go back to Nehemiah uh, chapter 10. And what we're talking about with this 10th chapter, we, we saw it in the 9th chapter. Remember that in the 9th chapter, there was that beautiful, <coughs> deep, historic panoramic view of the, the nation of Israel and all the times that they had turned away from God, rebelled against God, gone after idols, and there was this cycle of what? God bestowing mercy, God bestowing mercy, God being merciful, gracious and merciful. We kept, you kept seeing that term used in the ninth chapter. And that was the prayer before we get to chapter 10. The prayer was prayed, and then they sealed a covenant that what God had done, they were now going to enter into saying, Lord, we are committed to now walking in this mercy and this grace that you've bestowed upon us. The mercy of God, which remember, as we talked about the definition of that term, the mercy is God withholding the judgment and the punishment we deserve, as well as the grace of God, neither can be earned. We all understand that, right? They can only be what? Received. You can't earn mercy. You can't earn grace. 
There's nothing we could ever do to compensate for the sin debt any more than the woman. It wasn't the alabaster flask that was going to compensate for her sin. There's nothing we can do but ask for the mercy of God. Prostrate ourselves before the mercy of God. But if our asking is in humble sincerity, God will extend his mercy, God will extend his grace and his forgiveness that we desperately need. And it's with the extension of his mercy and the pouring out of his grace, we find fresh starts for our hearts. Don't we like fresh starts? Do you like when you finally take the car to the car wash? We have a minivan. I've never seen a clean one, and ours isn't either, right? So when in 2019 we clean it finally, it's going to get a fresh start. You know, I, I always feel good when I see other minivans because, you know, there's, I've yet to see a really clean one. Now, if you have one, don't show it to me because you'll, you'll blow my uh, whole thought that you know, that's the way they are. But we love fresh starts. We love when things go from when you, you clean out the fridge and it gets a fresh start. You're like, that's it? There will never be another three week left over here again. Four weeks later, there's 10, right? But we still like fresh starts. We need fresh starts. But God doesn't stop with a fresh start, He changes us. The point of salvation, according to 2 Corinthians 5 17, transforms us into entirely new creations. Isn't that great to know? New creation. If you're saved, you are not who you once were. You're not who you once were. Whether it be the day of our salvation or the returning to the Lord in a recommitment. There is such thing as a recommitment. You ever heard that term? The mercy of God, if it's sincerely appreciated, has a monumental impact on our response to God and our steps moving forward. We can't have positive steps moving forward without the mercy of God. People do not seal with a covenant like we see the covenant they're entering into in chapter 10. People do not seal with a covenant of renewed commitments unless God has first softened and sealed the hearts with his mercy. And people like the precious woman we just read about in Luke chapter 7, they do not lavish Christ with their tears and their treasures unless they've come to experience the lavish mercy and grace of God. That's what Jesus' whole point was. He was simply saying, he says, this woman would not lavish me with tears, love, humility, honor, and even her possessions unless I had lavished her with forgiveness that came from mercy and grace. If you're taking notes today, you see the title of our time in the Word, Starting Over, the impact of mercy. So we're going to stay on this theme of mercy from chapter 9 into this week, and then one more uh, kind of look at it with the, uh, the verses 32 through 39 next week and how it even impacts our giving. But you see, the mercy of God does indeed initiate the fresh start that we need. But beyond that, God himself, by his grace, helps us to become the people that God's called us and created us to be. What we see in Nehemiah chapter 10, what we see in Luke 7 is authentic worship. Authentic. You guys know what fake things look like, right? Fake Christmas trees look really good, but they're still fake, right? 
There's nothing living in a fake tree. You put it in water, you could electrocute everything, right? Not a living thing. You can tell the difference. You can get up to a real tree, you can get up to a fake tree, you can tell the difference. If God has really done a work in us, there is an authentic worship that is born out of it. And we see a return to worship, and we see an outpouring of worship. When we looked at Luke 7, Luke 7, that was an outpouring of worship. And they're both in response to the mercy of God. In other words, God's the initiator of both, both worship. Nehemiah 10, Luke 7. If you, hear, if you came here today and you were worshiping and have been worshiping, God is the initiator of the worship in our lives. Jesus said in John chapter 4 that the Father was seeking what? True worshipers. I, I mention this verse every now and then because the, the very statement tells us there's something else. There's false worshipers, right? Because the Father is seeking true worshipers. Why was that important? Well, when Luke 7 tells us that scene, the religious leaders were the false worshipers. It was the woman who was coming out of a lot of public sin that was the true worshiper. And Jesus says, the woman right behind me, she is worshiping authentically. You guys, it's just a religious veneer. Now, Jesus doesn't say the Father is looking for perfect worshipers, does it? He says true. We know something's authentic. A lot of authentic things are not perfect. Even the most authentic diamond has a flaw probably somewhere, and at least microscopic, right? But it's still genuine. God is not looking for perfect worshipers, but he is looking for genuine worshipers, and God knows who is who. Not really my point or your point to say, you're false, you're true, you're false, you're true, but God knows who is who. Not the religious routines of Jerusalem in Nehemiah's day, and not the religious routines in Jesus' day, that is not genuine worship. It's, God's not looking for the pride and the hypocrisy. He's looking for the humility and the surrender. The hearts that are committed to the sovereignty and the holiness of God are committed because they've been radically impacted by the mercy of God. That was Jesus' point. This woman, she's been so impacted by mercy that she can't help but give her life as a living sacrifice. She can't help but respond in this way. Brother and sister, the mercy of God has taken us, or will take us, the mercy of God will take us from wallowing in guilt. Did you know that? The mercy of God will take us from wallowing in guilt. If you ever meet people that are wallowing in guilt, they have yet to really appreciate. Perhaps they've experienced the mercy of God, but they've yet to appreciate it. If they're still wallowing in guilt, they've yet to appreciate the mercy of God. The mercy of God takes us from overwhelming shame. You don't have to live in shame anymore if you've experienced the mercy of God. You can set a match to the past. Paul said, forgetting the past. You imagine trying to be the apostle Paul and live forever knowing you're a murderer? It would be really hard to have an effective ministry if that's constantly wearing you down, dragging you down. The mercy of God moves us from apathy and indifference. If you're very apathetic about the faith, you don't appreciate the mercy of God. Moves us from indifference. 
It moves us from non-commitment and from procrastination. Now, we all have a tendency to procrastinate and a tendency not to commit, but God says, I'm going to move you past that by mercy and by grace. From self-centeredness and self-worship, we don't have to have anyone teach us how to do self-worship. We'll never have to be discipled in that. We'll never have to teach our kids. Now, this is how you worship yourself. This is how you look out for number one. You're going to really need to learn this. No. We're born with that. It moves us to take up our cross in obedience to the Lord. Mercy brings obedience. Not begrudging obedience. Not the resistant, all right, I'll do it. I'll do it, but I don't want to do it. And even as I do it, you know I don't want to do it. And I'm going to let you know I don't want to do it. And every... Every attitude of my heart and my face and everything else. No, no. Mercy brings gratitude-filled obedience. You see, many in Jerusalem now wanted to worship. They now wanted to worship with their lives. Nothing could stop this woman that we just read about. Nothing could stop her from worshiping Jesus. You couldn't talk her out of pouring the entire bottle on his feet. No, no one was able to talk. She said, it's done deal. I'm pouring the entire bottle out. Nothing could stop her from giving her very best to Jesus. Mercy, when it's penetrated our hearts, begins to remove all of our fears of, here it is, it removes our fear of commitment. We dread commitment. We dread what it's going to cost us. That's why Jesus said, take up your cross. He's like, when you take up a cross, you're committed to nails going in. But you're not going to be afraid. Perfect love casts out fear. Fear of commitment. It's not just the single dude out there that's 30 that's afraid of commitment. Many Christians are afraid of committing all in with the Lord. But God says, look, my mercy, when it penetrates you, it's going to remove those fears. It's going to remove those roadblocks. It's going to remove those hurdles. The reason so many today who name the name of Christ are so non-committal is they have very little appreciation for the sacrifice of Jesus. They have a low appreciation, a low view of what Jesus did on their behalf, a really low view. They actually don't understand the depth of what he's done and the mercy that's been offered by his blood. But how about us? Well, it's easy to look at everybody else and say, yeah, I, I bet that's true of the person sitting beside me. I bet that's true of people out there at so-and-so church. Or, uh, what about us? Are we reluctant to commit? Are we unwilling to let go of the control of our life? Unwilling to let go? I want to keep control. Okay, God, I'll give, you, I'll give you this, I'll give you this, but this I'm in control of. A heart changed by the mercy and grace of God lets helps us let go of all the things we're trying to hold on to, which we can't. Here's the great thing. We can't hold on to them anyway, but we actually think we can. <clears throat> My life verse, I know whom I believed in and persuaded. He is able to help me to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. He's able to keep. If I commit, he can help me keep the commitment. If you commit, he can help you keep the commitment. <laughs> He's commanded his word and by the testimony of Jesus. 
commitments to this world, and many are making commitments to this world. They don't realize it, but many people are making a lot of heavy commitments to the world, and they're all in with those commitments. But the commitment to the world will only bring us into bondage. Commitments to the Lord, again, these folks in Nehemiah 10, they're making some big commitments, recommitments to the Lord. But those commitments they're making here are not going to bring them into bondage. The things they were already committed to had them in bondage. They're coming out of... Remember, when they left Egypt, the whole picture was out of bondage into freedom. It's the same still as they recommit. The things of this world will bring us into bondage. Commitments to the Lord will bring us from out of that into freedom and peace in our lives while exalting the kingdom of God. So the woman in Luke 7, she wasn't only experiencing now freedom, deliverance from shame, deliverance from guilt, deliverance from non-committal, deliverance from apathy, deliverance from the standards and judgments of men. She was delivered from all that stuff and was right there in the presence of the creator of the universe and the savior of her soul. But she was exalting the kingdom of God, not even knowing it. Jesus is testifying of her witness even now and for all eternity. It's forever recorded in Scripture. Over the course of today, and then again next Sunday, we'll look at chapter 10 in a two-part examination. I, I don't want to rush what they sealed in this covenant because of these areas of, not, uh, these areas of recommitment that took place 2,500 years ago are the same areas of compromise and resistance that we find today. The human condition hasn't changed, has it? People are still people. People are still uh, afraid to give all... They have the Lord. They, they, they trust themselves more than they trust God. But they can't give themselves mercy or grace, so they have no hope unless they yield to God. Now, if you look at these 39 verses uh, in the covenant, which uh, the covenant, whenever you see this term covenant, it was a binding commitment. But they also take an oath, and you see uh, that they entered into a curse and an oath. In other words, if they break the oath, that they invite a curse of God on them for not keeping the covenant. But it's sealed. It says uh, now in verse 1 of, cha of chapter 10, now those who place their seal, so we can see like a, a wax seal, but it also represented each of their names or the families that they were representing. And so you'll note that verses 1 through 10 uh, you see in verse 8, for example, these were the priests. Verse 9, the Levites. Verse 10, their brethren. And verse 1 is Nehemiah himself. Um, these are the leaders of the people, the leaders of the community, and they sign and seal the covenant for themselves and on behalf of their extended families as well. So they're signing for themselves, but they're signing for others. I, I, I'm a dad with a family of five. There's certain things that I sign up for that the whole family gets signed up when I sign up. And that's the way it worked here. Verse 28, it expresses everyone else that was in agreement. And so it says in verse 28, now the rest of the people, so again, not just the leaders, but the people were in agreement, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers. Uh, gatekeepers not a spiritual role, but a very important role uh, for security and safety, the singers and the theum, and all those who had separated themselves. Everyone who had truly repented was in agreement with this covenant that they were entering into. Now notice uh, in verse 28 as well, um, it says uh, once, that, once that they had 
experienced the mercy of God and they had been awakened, it says at the end of verse 28, everyone who had knowledge and understanding. Before I was saved, I did not have knowledge and understanding. You can have what's called street smarts. You can have school of hard knocks. You can have really good educated. But knowledge and understanding from God's perspective is not imparted until the Holy Spirit is given to us. Amen? That's when we start to, after we're saved, we start, we start to say, why couldn't I see all this before? Why didn't these verses not make sense to me? Why did I not think that these things would feed my soul, but I thought the other stuff would? They had knowledge and understanding because when there's genuine response to the mercy and grace of God, then God imparts, our eyes are opened. We once were blind, but now we see. They had knowledge and understanding. It now was reasonable. It now made sense to keep these commandments. Whereas before they resisted the commandments because they thought, if we do these commandments, our life won't be near as fun. But fun doesn't see, feed the soul, does it? Fun always needs more fun. But joy is something deeper. The wisdom of God, the knowledge of God, the understanding of God, the presence of God. Uh, God says to us, hey, when you commit in these areas, then you're going to be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. And you'll make it through any season. Do you know that? I talked about that uh, a little bit on Wednesday. You know, Jesus in the bottom of the boat, sound asleep. Everybody else freaking out. All your money, all your stuff can't help you when trials come. But God says, if you have knowledge and understanding, you will know that these things are the anchors. You want to build your life on the rock, Jesus said. But verses 28 and 29, uh, they essentially are the who and the what of the covenant. These join with their brethren, brethren, verse 29, the nobles, they entered into a curse and an oath which was given by Moses, the servant of God. Again, these laws or these commandments were not new, they were abandoned, and they're bringing them back. It would be like there was a time that you used to share your faith, and you've gotten away from it. And God says, it's time to bring it back. It's time for you to start telling people about Jesus again. There was a time that you used to spend time in prayer on your knees. God says, it's time to bring it back. There was a time that you used to love to worship. Now you're like, I don't really like to worship anymore. God says, it's time to bring it back. That's, the, that's what they were saying here, is that these things were not new. They were given by God to Moses. That God had not moved. The people had moved. To do all the commandments of the Lord our God and his ordinances and his statutes. This is the who and the what of the covenant. Now, verses 30 and 31, uh, you read verse 30, we would not give our daughters as wives of the people of the land or take, our son, or, or take their daughters for our sons. And then verse 31, if the people of the land brought wares or any grain to sell on the Sabbath, we would not buy it from them on the Sabbath or on the holy day. We would forego the seventh year's produce and the exacting of every debt. So verses 30 and 31, they deal with the first two, uh, 28 and 29 of the who and what of the covenant, but verse 30 and 31 deal specifically with a return to marriage purity in verse 30, and then in verse 31, the keeping of the Sabbath, the holy days, which they had neglected. They had not kept the Day of Atonement. They had not kept Passover. They had not kept Feast of Booths, these things they had not done. Uh, and also the year of Jubilee, the, the land Sabbath every seven years. 
The land was supposed to get a rest. If you had debts, they were to be forgiven. Wouldn't that be great? Every seven years, Citibank says, zero. Bank of America, Capital One, all you know. They, they don't do that. They say, lots of interest. You know, they, they, we want you in debt forever. So much has changed. I, I tell people that a lot of people don't know, but you know, when Henry Ford uh, started Ford Motor Company, his his desire was that everybody would be able to buy a car, and have a car, and no debt. Do you think that's what Ford Motor Credit has in mind today? No, they want you in debt for life. And so does General Motors, and so does Honda, and so does Nissan. They want you to have a $500 car payment. They want you to be straddled. They want you to be completely working to make sure you are tied to their every, whatever, the court just, we want you to be in bondage financially so you can have what you want. But God says people will make mistakes, and so every seven years, you're going to wipe the slate clean. They're going to get an opportunity. The land needs a break. You cannot just keep sowing corn forever, keep sowing wheat forever on the same. It needs, a, it needs a break. And by the way, after six days of work, we need a rest. I know. I don't need it. I'm nonstop. Oh, yeah. And we all need a rest. The only one that need to rest is God. But they were going to recommit to these things. And then verses 32 through 39, which we'll look at more next week, verses 32 through 39... Deal with, get ready for it, money. The whole rest, the last eight verses. In fact, of the 12 verses that outline the covenant, verses 30, I'm sorry, sorry, verses 28 through 39, that's 12 verses. 28 through 39, you can count them up yourself. 12 verses. Of the 12, eight of them deal with money. Now, that's not because God is fixated on money. It's because People are fixated on money. Did you know that? God doesn't need money. It's paper to him. It's just a metal to him. Everything is nothing but molecules in his hand, if you will, right? But because people, are, their trust is based on what they have, the last eight verses deal with finances, and we'll look at that next week. A great passage to look at before you get in debt in Christmas season. So we'll look, take a look at um, uh, we'll take a look at that. Hold off on some of your purchases until next Sunday. Uh, you'll feel better about that. So we'll look at these last, 12, uh, last eight verses more next week in detail. But there's an order and we'll take a look at it in this order uh, today uh, and then next Sunday we'll look at the renewed and giving. Today, renewed in purity and renewed in worship and then we'll look at the renewed in giving, but this order, understand that the order is really not coincidental. First, the purity, God wants us to confess and make things right in our heart. Then there's the commitment to vertical, a recommitment to vertical worship. If you're not worshiping God, guess what? You'll go back to worshiping something else. Everybody worships something. Everybody worships something. They worship their career, worship themselves, their sports team, blah, blah, blah. Everybody worships something. Their, their kids, their relationships. So God says, get pure or get cleaned by me. Go back to worshiping me. You've got to fill your life with something. When, it, when, when God takes the false worship out, it's got to be replaced by what? Genuine service and surrender to the Lord. And then lastly, those that 
have this purified heart and this recommitment to worship, we'll become willful and cheerful givers. That's how God works in our life. The first thing, renewed in purity, if you're taking notes, as we read already, verse 30, we would not give our daughters as wives to the people of the land or take their daughters for our sons. A return to purity is a return to a pure and merciful God who's also a good and perfect father. Would you say God is a good father? More than good, he's a perfect father. Perfect. Ravi Zacharias said this. He said, when God is our holy father, sovereignty, holiness, omniscience, which is all-knowing, and immutability do not terrify us. Do those characteristics of God terrify you or comfort you? Well, for the atheist or people that hate God, they hate the concept that God knows what they're thinking. Me, on the other hand, now that I'm saved, I like that God knows what I'm thinking because he can help me correct my thinking. But before I was saved, you don't want God knowing what you're thinking. You don't want anyone knowing what you're thinking. He goes on to say, they leave us full of awe and gratitude. Holiness is not terrifying if it's, uh, holiness is only terrifying if it is untempered by grace. Omniscience is only taunting if it is unaccompanied by mercy. But here's the point. God says, I know what you're thinking, and I still am going to bestow mercy upon you. And so instead of terrifying us, it humbles us and gives us a heart of gratitude. That's what we see in the woman in Luke chapter 7. It wasn't that Jesus was reading thoughts at that lunch. And he knew her thoughts. And by the way, her thoughts wouldn't have been perfect either because even after we've become a lot more like Jesus, we still have thoughts that we wish, why did I think that? Why did I have that attitude? Why did I have that response? It's still, but God says, I'm going to extend mercy again. The holiness of God, though, it demands purity that aligns with the character of God. God will never, ever, 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 God will never lower his standards. Did you know that? He will never lower his standards. He's not like a parent that can be worn down by the kid. God will never lower his standards. But in his omniscience, he knows where we're at, and he'll send the message along with grace and the undeserved mercy to call us back. He knows where we're at. He's not going to change his standard or move, but he is going to, in mercy, call us back. And wherever we've wandered off to, whatever the impurities we've allowed in our lives and in our hearts and in our minds, God will see them and say, I'm calling you back. There's now no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. The Lord has given a clear command through Moses and Joshua. They knew what Moses and Joshua had given. When you come into the land, you were not in any way to intermarry with the pagan societies of Canaan. That was a non-negotiable thing. You are not in any way to marry in these pagan societies. It'll corrupt and it'll corrode the conscience of the home. By the way, understand, God was not against the Canaanite people. He was against the false religions of the land. Does that make sense? He loved the Canaanite people. He was not against the Canaanite people. He was against the false religions of the land. So this intermarrying 
it did not apply to Canaanite people that had surrendered to the true and living God. How do we know this? You ever heard of Rahab? You ever heard of Ruth? Rahab the harlot, Ruth the Moabitess, two Canaanite women who both believed and trusted in God, and they married Jewish men. And one's in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11, and the other was in the line of Christ. So the commandment was not against marrying. If a Canaanite person like Rahab or Ruth had given their lives to God, then you could marry them. But if they were still following other gods, so no matter what the single person tries to tell me, well, I know he doesn't really love Jesus, but I think I can win him over. No. Keep your life pure. But the command was clear. No intermarrying with those of pagan religions. To do so was to compromise and a slow, steady drift from God would take place. Um, the purity of marriage and the commitment to God, what would happen is it would become poisoned by the mixing of God's ways in the world. And then you kind of have both of them. But we'll kind of walk part of God's ways, part of this other religious system ways, or part of the world's system. God's commands eventually will be replaced by the world's value. And that's what we see happens when people say, well, I just... I'm just going to compromise in this little area. And the Jews that were there in Jerusalem, as had their ancestors, which we saw the prayer of confession in chapter 9, as had their ancestors, they had allowed immorality and compromise into their marriage relationships, and they had brought idolatry into the home. It wasn't the idolatry brought itself into the home. They brought it into the home. By the way, in our homes... Typically, no one is forcing idolatry into our homes. We're bringing it in, amen? Not somebody else. Not like our neighbors barged in and said, listen up, you're all going to follow this from now on. No, we adopt the attitudes and the course of the world instead of staying true to the things that God says, this is what I want you to walk in. And so the Jews that were there, they had this intermixing, and it, and it, and it had caused a lot of spiritual drift and, and very lukewarm and worse than that, idolatry in all different forms. Uh, in 1 John 2, 16, it says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but of the world. There's so many things that God says, I don't care if you think it's not going to be harmful. This is what my word says. It will be. It'll bring pride. It'll bring lust. 2 Corinthians 6, 17. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. We're to be different from the world. Amen? We're to walk different. We're, we're to have a different set of standards, not the ones we make up, but the ones that God has given. That's what they were returning to. They weren't making this list. They were returning to this list. They are recommitting to this list. What about us? What are the areas of sin and compromise we've allowed in our lives or perhaps in our marriages and our homes? What we're allowing on the TV or our smartphones or in conversations? What are we willing to say about people behind their back that God says, you can't do that anymore? I've saved you from that. That's, that's the way the world cuts people up, slices them down. Uh, I bet you we'd clean some of these up if we knew Jesus was with visiting seven days from now to our house. What do you think? 
There would be a family meeting in some cases. All right. Like we, 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 had, we had some people over Friday night. We cleaned like we hadn't cleaned, and you know, everything's got to be right, right? But if we knew Jesus was going to visit, spiritually that happens, wouldn't it? And so they were taking serious what they had already, always should have been taking serious. That's precisely what Jesus does, by the way, in Revelation chapter 1 through 3. He examines the churches, doesn't he? Meticulously examines in them and says, you've got idolatry, you've got immorality, you've got pride. You, Laodiceans, you're addicted to materialism. You love your stuff. But you're far from me. What are the things the Lord is calling us to? Calling us to remove from our life. There might be something right now the Holy Spirit is saying, I've told you to remove this from your life. Why is it still something you're playing around with? Calling us back. Things where God wants us to get on our knees, to confess, and replace with His will and His commandments. It's a safe place on our knees. It's a victorious place on our knees when we don't just get on our knees, but we actually leave things at the feet of Jesus there we want to empty so we can be filled. D.L. Moody said, he who kneels the most stands the best. Who kneels the most stands the best. And that's what God wants. He says, I want you to respond to my mercy, but when you do, admit, say, Lord, this has got to go. Help me. Last one we want to look at this morning. Renewed in worship. Psalm 24 Verses 3 and 5 say, Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol. God says, you cannot worship me and worship the world at the same time. You cannot have one hand on the cross and one hand on the world. you got to let go. Um, try Try climbing a ladder with one hand, right? You're going to need them both. Sabbaths and holy days were given by God to constantly stir forgetful hearts. Did you know that? They were given to constantly stir. The Sabbath day was given to be holy. It was to be consecrated unto the Lord. It was to be set aside for rest. It was to be set aside for worship, it is to be set aside for reflection. Where am I in my walk with the Lord? Leviticus 23.3 says, Six days shall work be done. Uh, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work on it. It is the Sabbath of the Lord in all your dwelling. No matter how Israel grew, no matter where they were, the Sabbath was to be observed that day. Do not work. Do not try and Add to your fortune. Do not try and get more done. Take that time to rest and to worship the Lord. The other demands of life had to be put on hold one day a week. This day was to be dedicated to the Lord. It was a weekly requirement, a weekly rest, a weekly reminder to Israel that they were to orient their lives around the Lord, you know, that when the tabernacle was put into, when they moved in the promised land, the tabernacle was built, the tribes were all around the tabernacle. The tabernacle was put at the center of their life, not its way down the list. They oriented their life around the tabernacle, around the presence of the Lord. And so the Sabbath was a reminder that they 
were to orient their lives around God. This worship day that belonged to God reminded them that their very lives belonged to God. And we know this is true. We know that the only reason we're breathing is God has kept us alive. Amen? But God wants us to not just know it, but to be reminded of it and respond to that. Now, we know the Sabbath was the sixth day of the week, so it would be in our calendar, it would be Saturday, not Sunday. That was the day God gave to Israel for them to be a light, to be refreshed each day or each week uh, as a testimony to the world. With the resurrection of Jesus, we have the freedom to worship on this first day of the week, which we, which we do now. And many uh, in the early uh, churches, particularly the Gentile churches, started worshiping on the first day of the week, became common and predominantly the, the Gentile churches. There's, there's not a <laughs> prohibition against that in the New Testament. There's, not, uh, there's certainly uh, nothing wrong with you know, Brother Sam, his church. They, they still have Sabbath uh, worship services on Saturday. But the bottom line is God still, the principle of a day of worship is consistent from Genesis to Revelation. There's not, there's not where God says, hey, this isn't important anymore. Now, if, you're a, if you have a job as a nurse or a fireman or you have shift work on a, a factory that keeps you from Sundays, you thank the Lord you have the freedom. You can make Wednesday a worship day for you. Or some other weekly gathering. You can have some other weekly gathering with the body of Christ. In the New Testament church, they actually started gathering much more than one day a week. Did you know that? Ever read the book of Acts? They were not like, all right, we better keep Sabbath. They, they wanted to meet a lot more than once. They were that hungry for the Lord and for fellowship and so they, meet, they met much more than one day a week to be built up in prayer, to be built up in the word, to be built up in fellowship, and to be unified in worship because they understood that, again, it was always a holy convocation that God said, coming together, coming together. So they wanted to do that even more. And so the Spirit didn't say only one day a week. The Spirit was actually compelling them to actually come together even more. In other words... The Old Testament law expanded under grace. It expanded beyond that one day a week. But understand, we have some freedom on how and when we worship, but we don't have the freedom to stop consistently gathering to worship. Does that make sense? We have some freedom on how and when, but we don't have the freedom on, I don't, I'm just going to do it my own way. I'm not going to consistently gather. No, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much more as you see the day approaching. So the more we see Jesus returning, the more committed to getting together, singing together, reading the word together, worshiping together. We're more committed to that. According to Hebrews 10, 25, the closer we get to Jesus, the more committed we are, or should be, if the mercy of God is working in our life. We'll gather more out of love for God than duty to God. More out of love for God. I've told you before, I probably told this 10, 15 times, but when I was still in the business world, and I had, for five years, I was vocationally pastoring the church. I teach on Sundays, go to work Monday through Friday, fly, do this, that. But one of my coworkers, who was not a church guy, would always say to me, uh, so he, oh, he would, he would say, 
stuff like, you know, did you, did you send the flock to hell this weekend? Or you would, uh, say stuff like, um, you know, uh, how was church this weekend? I would, uh, did you have to go again? And I, I'd say, I don't have to go. I get to go. I get to go and worship the Lord. I get to come into the presence of God. I get to gather with the people uh, that God has saved. We'll say with joy in our hearts, along with the psalmist in Psalm 122.1, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Is that your heart? Wait, are you glad you get to go to the house of the Lord? Are you glad you get to go and worship with your brothers and sisters? Are you glad you get to hear the word of God? Sadly, many today, I was glad when the service ended. I was glad when the kids' activities eliminated 10 Sundays per year, and we now have an airtight excuse that we don't have to go. I was glad when live streaming was invented, and I can now sit in my PJs and watch with a fresh cup of coffee. Now, we live stream, by the way, here. Pastor Joe in Calvary Philly, he won't live stream for that very reason, even though they're 12,000 strong, go there. You know, we live stream because we really believe that if you have the flu, we want you to still be able to join us. If you really are laid up from a surgery, we want you to be able to join us. If you're traveling or you are on deployment somewhere, uh, you know, we want you to be able to join us. That's why we do it. But it's not a replacement. It's something that's a blessing for specific needs. But it, it's never to replace us coming together. Hebrews 10, 25, gathering, assembling together. Well, I do that virtually. Right? And a... There's a place for virtual technologies, but not in replacing uh, iron sharpening iron, people coming to worship together. And by the way, in my years, I've been saved since 1995, in my years of working with and helping to disciple believers, almost every other reason other than sickness, I mean a real sickness, a real health battle, somebody has something that's, that's, uh, that's all of a sudden keeping them home, a real sickness, it could be a battle with cancer, it could be uh, from a surgery or things like that, um, unless it's something along those lines or a vocational calling or commitment. You know, uh, we had Jason seven months deployed to the Indian Ocean. He could not be here with us on Sundays. Unless it's, uh, unless it's you know, like a military deployment or, or, or some, some specific kind of job thing that uh, keeps us away, any other reason, all these other reasons that you'll hear well, we can't come because of this. We can't come because of that. We can't become. Almost every time I've seen over the years, those folks slide away from the Lord. I've never seen one where they give a reason that's not something that was out of their control. Like, again, if you get hit with an illness or sickness or a job deployment, those things, some of those things are outside of your control. But the ones that are in your control where we have changed the priorities of our life, when God moves down the list, God moves out of the list eventually. And, and then they say, and the church has let me down, and people have let me down, and no one cares about me, and blah, 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 all that kind of stuff. And God sits there and says, no, I've not let you down, and neither have the people of God. You have willingly walked away. And I see it again and again in 20-some years, I see it. And I, and I try my best to tell people, and I've tried, I'm sure you do too, say, no, no, stay close to the throne of God. Now, this, this place isn't holy because it's a building. It's holy because we obey the Lord. He honors the obedience of us coming together, not that we bring anything great. What we bring is like 170 sinners together. That doesn't really do much. <laughs> 
But the mercy and presence of God in our midst does a lot. Amen? That's what takes place when we gather together. The intent of the law of the Sabbath was meant that the exhortations of Scripture, the intent of the law and the exhortations of things like Hebrews 10.25, it's meant to continually prick our hearts and reveal the thoughts and intents of our heart. That's why we're supposed to keep gathering under the Word. Let the water of the Word continue to do its work. God says, you're going to need it once a week, at least once a week. God's saying, this is the minimum. Once a week, you're going to need this in your life. The intent of the Word and the worship is to bring conviction, is to bring revelation that leads us back into relationship. And it ultimately, with Israel and us, it reminds us to depend on God rather than ourselves. That's what God's saying. I want you to remember to depend on me, not depend on yourself. And yet, we can still come and be a faithful attender of church and still have closed ears and hard hearts. Did you know that? We can still come and still kind of like not be present. Uh, we, are we checking the box to show God our attendance list? Here you go, God. Here's my attendance list. I'm really good at this. I made 40 out of 52 weeks. Here it is, right there. But we can have no real desire for worship, no thirst for the Lord, no work of the Spirit, no love for the family of God, no love for fellowship. That's a red flag in your life if that's the case. Those sealing this covenant were not recommitting to the Sabbath to cover their bases, but they were recommitting to the Sabbath that their lives would be an outflow of daily Sabbath living wherever they went. Does that make sense? In other words, you're living in the Sabbath every day. You might have special convocations of coming together, but your life is a continual worship day to the Lord. Amen? So the seventh is just like icing on the cake. A.W. Tozer says, if you will not worship God seven days a week, you do not worship him one day a week. And that's true. The more you and I have private worship God with God, the more we enjoy collective worship with God. Does that make sense? The more you have a vertical one-on-one worship with God, the more you love to worship with your brothers and sisters. If you don't have it one-on-one with God, you really won't care that much for it with the larger body of Christ. The Lord wants to renew each of us one by one with our own names signed and sealed, as we saw in verses 1 through 10. But he also wants to renew us together. Amen? Together. Families. All of us. That's my prayer this week and next week and the remaining five Sundays. We've been asking, what can God do in 52? Can he bring us back into full walking and the peace and joy of his grace because of his mercy. I believe he can. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Father, we, we just thank you so much that our walk is not initiated by us, but it started with you extending mercy and then giving us the grace to enter into this commitment with you. And you'll help us to keep that which we've committed. And Lord, I pray that everyone here, that we would not be afraid of committing these things, or that we would think, well, we're being legalistic, Lord, but no, that we would know that, no, it's healthy to commit in these areas, and that you'll honor them, and that you'll glorify yourself in us through them. Lord, we love you. We desire, Lord, to surrender all that we have to you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.